Codex. Codex. Welcome to another episode of ORP. Uh, so today we're concluding our James Bond discussion with the latest actor to play 007, Daniel Craig. In fact, we have so much to say about him that we're concluding with a big two-part episode. Um, and, and be honest, this, this episode and what we're doing feels like a two-parter. Um, the, the Craig era is a very different take on Bond than the previous versions we've talked about, but it also revitalized the franchise after Die Another Day. And what impact that run had on you? Sure, Steve. Um, I have really enjoyed other Bond films, as we've talked about already. I really like Connery and Dr. No and From Russia With Love because of their heavy spy content over gadgets and theatrics. Also, there is more of a tough guy thing going on there. Not to say that I can't appreciate gadgets, theatrics, and the smooth, sexy side of Bond. Um, but with Craig, I felt like we returned to more of a spy film. Daniel Craig pulls off the tough guy persona well, and he carries himself like a man of his training should. He's not quite as smooth and sexy as Brosnan, uh, but that is not to say that those things aren't there. He is a believable ladies' man, and he can deliver in line when he needs to. Uh, but what I think I really love about Craig's Bond is that he seems to find the perfect balance of the other traits of the two Bonds that we've discussed. But I suppose that the biggest impact I had in me was how much I loved Casino Royale. I knew instantly it was going to be my favorite Bond film. I loved seeing Bond from the beginning as I had never seen him before. Uh, but how about you, Steve? Well, I will admit at the time, uh, I had a little bit of skepticism because I hadn't seen Daniel Craig in anything until Casino Royale. Uh, Craig didn't look like any kind of Bond we'd seen before either. Uh, there was a rougher, harder-edged look to Craig, and not like the, the suave, sophisticated gentleman that we were used to after Connery and Brosnan. But I was open to Craig as Bond because I knew that they were going back to Fleming for this one. And they were aiming for more of a book-accurate Bond in this first film. And then he was just so good in that first film that by the end, I was just completely sold on Craig as Bond. But why don't we get into Casino Royale and uh, see how that played out? Sure thing, Steve. Casino Royale came out in 2006 as the 21st Eon Production James Bond film. Following Die Another Day in 2002, Albert Broccoli's Eon Production Limited decided to reboot the franchise and explore a less experienced, more vulnerable Bond. Casino Royale stars Daniel Craig in his first appearance as Bond, and we'll get into that part in a minute. Alongside Daniel Craig, Eva Green comes on to play Vesper Lind. Mads Mikkelsen comes on to play Le Chiffre. Uh, Giancarlo Giannini plays Rene Mathis, Bond's contact in Montenegro. Uh, Jesper Christensen plays Mr. White from The Unnamed Quantum. Judy Dench reprises her role as M, and Jeffrey Wright comes on to play Felix Leiter. But speaking of Daniel Craig as James Bond, I believe you had something you wanted to say about that, didn't you, Steve? I do, in fact. Uh, one interesting and surprising thing about Daniel Craig is that he didn't even want to do Bond at first. Uh, Daniel Craig initially rejected the part of James Bond as he felt that the series had settled into a standard formula. And if you look at the previous films leading up to Casino Royale, I, I totally understand how he felt that way. I don't think he understood where they were going with Casino Royale at first, and he was probably going off the earlier films. 
Anyway, uh, Craig changed his mind when he read the finished script of Casino Royale. Apparently, he was impressed enough with it that he was on board ever since then. But we still haven't really talked about how Craig got involved in the first place. So, Mike, can you talk about the casting process and how Daniel Craig was cast as Bond? I sure can, Steve. Producers Michael G. Wilson and Barbara Broccoli were looking for a new kind of James Bond. They needed a younger, uh, virile, uh, darker version of the character uh, for the new vision of the franchise. For this reason, over 200 younger men auditioned for the role, including Alex O'Loughlin, Sam Worthington, Carl Urban, Colin Farrell, Dominic West, and Gerard Butler. However, according to director Martin Campbell, Henry Cavill was the only actor seriously considered for the role of James Bond. But at 22 years old, while they wa- while they did want a younger James Bond, Cavill was just considered too young. And apparently, check this out, Hugh Jackman just flat out turned down the role. The Superman and Wolverine, that's awesome. <laughs> uh, Henry Cavill, though, is an interesting name to bring up because he's one of the names that uh, tend to come up when people talk about following Craig. Um, Cavill's a fans actor, which is something that comes up, especially in connection with his other projects like Superman, The Witcher, and now the upcoming uh, Warhammer 40K series he's doing at Amazon. And given that he's been in several spy films like Mission Impossible, Rogue Nation, and The Man from Uncle, uh, Henry Cavill clearly seems to love the spy genre. Not to mention he's a really good actor and he shines in everything I've seen him in. I, I love his Gerald of Rivia. I think he'd be good, a good Bond, a great one maybe. And, may, and perhaps the best of the names you listed, but Craig is probably better for the Bond they were going for in this film. Uh, Anyway, how did Daniel Craig get involved in the film? I will tell you, but first I must agree with you about Kevil. He would make a great Bond, and I hope he is who they go with for the new Bond. But to answer your question, apparently Daniel Craig said that he was shopping for groceries when he got the call from producer Barbara Broccoli that he won the James Bond role. She apparently told him, over to you, kiddo. Craig left his groceries behind and celebrated with martinis, shaken, not stirred. <laughs> I thought that was awesome. If I got the role of James Bond, that is totally how I would celebrate. I don't even drink martinis. Um, <laughs> when Daniel Craig was announced as the new Bond, the press and many fans reacted by questioning the concept of a blonde Bond. The producers responded by reminding the press that not only was the longest serving actor in the role uh, the blonde-haired Roger Moore, but that when the first Bond film was being cast, Ian Flaming suggested more for the role, seeing him as the ideal blonde. The ideal blonde. <laughs> the ideal Bond. Uh, I would like to clarify that they are exaggerating a little bit. Uh, Roger Moore had blonde in his very dark hair. <laughs> his hair was not, in fact, blonde like Daniel Craig's hair. Uh, but I still get what they were trying to say. Uh, but even with this retort, many would refer to Craig as James Blonde. But I say fuck all of them. Daniel Craig was amazing. And for that matter, Sir Sean Connery, Sir Roger Moore, Timothy Dalton, Pierce. Brosnan and George Lazenby all supported the casting of Daniel Craig as James Bond. Yeah, I I think some people just have a fixed idea of Bond in their heads based on what we've seen before. I mean, I don't agree with it, but I do get it. Uh, Casino Royale and the other Craig films upend a lot of traditional things people were used to seeing in a James Bond film, and that tends to ruffle some feathers. Um, I think this is a silly thing to get worked up over, but when a film goes against expectations like this, I'm not surprised that there would have been some controversy about it. I just don't think a lot of people understood that they were aiming for the Bond of the novels rather than doing the Connery or uh, Brosnan style of Bond films. I mean, those were good times, but they needed to shift gears after the last film. And I think Craig was the right person to get that across. 
Actually, you nailed it there. Um, they were definitely going for a more novel, accurate Bond, and Craig was definitely the right guy for the job to prepare for the role. Daniel Craig read all of Ian Fleming's novels and talked with Mossad and British Secret Service agents who had served as advisors in Munich in 2005. In an interview with Jonathan Ross on the set of Casino Royale, Daniel Craig stated that he wanted to be faithful to the book and to show the character's raw vulnerability by having him make a few mistakes. He went on to say that the drama would be there when he gets it right and make the audience think that it's all going to go wrong. And then when it goes right, the audience would get more excited. To prepare for the role, Daniel Craig also gained 20 pounds of muscle by eating mostly proteins, minimizing his carbohydrate intakes, training five days a week, and only doing cardio exercises on the weekends. There was a fairly big deal made when Casino Royale was released about how buff Craig had gotten. But in truth, being in such great shape and conditioning was not new to Craig, as he had been a semi-professional rugby player at one time. Daniel Craig did need to quit smoking, though, and had Simon Watterson as a personal trainer to get into shape. It definitely looks like Craig got rid of all those freed radicals. <laughs> I, I actually did not know that uh, Daniel Craig was a rugby player, but now that you mention it, I, I can actually see it. Uh, Craig lo certainly looks like he played a share of rugby in his life. Now, I eventually want to get into the process of how the movie finally got made after all these years. But before we do that, we should probably talk about the Casino Royale novel and how it compares to the 2006 film. Um, Mike, did you want to get into those details? I do, Steve. Uh, Casino Royale is the first Eon production James Bond movie to utilize all of the main characters from an original Ian Fleming James Bond novel since Live and Let Die in 1973. Characters derived from the novel include Le Chiffre, both French agent Rene Mathis and CIA operative Felix Leiter and Vesper Lind. On the subject of the novel, I won't go into all the details, but the film basically follows Fleming's Casino Royale novel beat for beat. They really only change small details for the most part, but keep very similar situations. We're talking about things like uh, from Le Chiffre losing a ton of other people's money and having to win it back at, at the Royale Le Zoo Casino in Somme or Die. Or in the movie, it was the Le Casino Royale in Montenegro. Uh, the way Bond orders his first vodka martini in the film is taken directly from the novel, including naming it the Vesper. Things like Bond losing all of his money at first and then coming back to beat Le Chiffre, the capture of Vesper and Bond's torture that followed, even Le Chiffre getting shot in the head while torturing Bond all come from the novel. However, it was a Smurse agent that shot Le Chiffre in the book and it's Mr. White from the unnamed Quantum in the movie. Also, the torture implement used by Le Chiffre was different. It was a carpet beater in the novel and a rope in the film, but both tortures focused on causing severe harm to Bond's genitals. Uh, two of the poker players in Le Chiffre's game are theorized to be characters from the novels. The large black gentleman is Mr. Big from Live and Let Die, and the touristy woman to Felix Leiter's left it appeared in Goldfinger. She and her husband asked James Bond to investigate Arik Goldfinger's cheating on them. I would also like to point out a difference from the film, and that is after the torture, Bond was fearful for his life and disillusioned with the morality of the Cold War, and that was what drove him to want to retire. Falling in love with Vesper came after that. In fact, he was going to full-on marry Vesper in the novel before her death. Also, while it didn't happen exactly the same way, Vesper even commits suicide at the end of both the novel and the film for practically the same reason. She had been forced to do what she had done because 
because of the man she was in love with before Bond. In the movie, they were threatening to kill her ex if she didn't cooperate. And in the novel, she was being blackmailed because of him. But she still killed herself because of that situation one way or the other. That's a change that makes sense. Uh, Bond today is not a product of the Cold War the way that he was under Fleming and during most of the previous Bond films. So it makes sense to update the film to reflect the time when it was made. Uh, it still seems like they kept the majority of what worked in the book regardless. Also, it seems like Smirsh was changing the quantum organization when they developed Quantum of Solace, but we can get more into that when we discuss that film. But there were some issues lingering over the film. Now, uh, although based on uh, Ian Fleming's first Bond novel, this was not the first attempt to adapt Casino Royale for the screen, but nobody had ever adapted it properly in a film until 2006. There is a fair amount of history behind all that, as it turns out. Uh, Mike, do you want to talk about the previous attempts to do Casino Royale and exactly what prevented this movie from being made for all these years? I absolutely do. And, and buckle up, folks. <laughs> this will take a minute. Um, as you mentioned earlier, they were legal issues and behind the scenes problems plaguing the making of Casino Royale. These problems actually go all the way back to 1954 and stretch across decades into the early 2000s. Uh, but they started out like this. Ian Fleming found himself in need of money in 1954. To that end, he had received a couple of offers for his first Bond novel, Casino Royale. Before he was able to to sell the rights to it, the book itself was actually not all that successful. Ian Fleming did sell the rights to producer-director Gregory Radoff, who purchased them in May of 1954 for $600 on a six-month option. But ultimately, Fleming ended up feeling like it was sold too cheaply. Radoff took the novel to CBS, who purchased the rights to the novel for $1,000. John Shepard negotiated the sale of the film and the television rights on the deal. CBS then produced a one-hour uh, version of Casino Royale for CBS's dramatic anthology series, Climax, and 1954. Barry Nelson played James Bond in that black and white production and was the first on-screen actor to ever portray him. Now, here's the tie-in to the modern issues. Twelve months after the television screening of that one-hour episode, Radoff flat-out bought Casino Royale outright in perpetuity for an additional 6000 in 1955. After Radoff died in December of 1960, his widow sold the rights to Charles K. Feldman for $75,000, which is probably closer to what Fleming wishes he had sold it for. Mm -hmm. Feldman, however, used those rights to make the James Bond spoof Casino Royale in 1967 that you mentioned earlier. Right. Uh, Albert uh, Broccoli very likely did have every intention of doing Casino Royale, but the rights issues kept him from doing it while he was alive. So that's why Dr. No was the first Bond film and not Casino Royale. But the rights did come back to the Bond franchise, and even if it took decades, we finally got to see this book get a big stream's treatment. But it was also a great note to start Craig's Bond on. I mean, starting over using Fleming as the guiding star of the film. But uh, there's something else you wanted to get into as well, isn't there? There is. But first, I have to agree that this was the perfect story to reboot the franchise and one of the better Bond stories that I'm aware of. It's hard to believe it took almost 40 years to get it done, but it seems to have been well worth the wait. But as you said, there was something else I wanted to cover here. As we talked about in the Connery episode, Kevin McClory held all the rights to the screenplays, treatments, and film rights to Thunderball. When E.N. Productions made Thunderball in 1965, McClory produced it as part of their agreement. 
Under the deal, Eon licensed McClory's rights for a period of 10 years, and in return, they assigned to McClory any rights they had to scripts or treatments. From what I can dig up, in November of 1997, about a month before the release of Brosnan's second film, Tomorrow Never Dies, MGM and Don Jack uh, filed a 39-page lawsuit against Sony Corp, Sony Pictures, Columbia Pictures Industri Industries Incorporated, John Cowley, a former MGM executive who is now president of Sony Pictures, uh, director-producer Kevin McClory, and McClory's company, Spectre Associates, uh, for copyright infringements and a breach of contract over Sony's plans to make a couple of new Bond films and other things. The first film they had issues with was Sony had mentioned a deal with Kevin McClory to produce a third version of Thunderball. That which we just do not need a third version of that movie. I'm just going to say <laughs> that. <laughs> McClory had previously acted as a producer with Eon on Thunderball and had licensed his rights uh, for the production of Never Say Never Again in 1983. MGM attorney Pierce O'Donnell said any rights McClory had to the Bond name expired by 1989 under U.S. copyright laws. In O'Donnell's words, this is the most valuable film franchise in history. We've taken this preemptive strike to nip the claim of Bond ownership right in the bud. Yeah, I don't think we need another Thunderball remake either. <laughs> as much as I love that movie. But uh, firstly, I have to say that uh, Spectre Associates is absolutely perfect in this context. <laughs> so would that technically make McCrory the Blofeld here? <laughs> Seriously, though, I mean, this sounds like an absolute mess. I mean, it's interesting how legal drama has been one of the biggest problems the Braun franchise has had to deal with over the past few decades that it's been around. But the situation's even more complicated than that, as it turns out. Uh, did you want to get into that, Mike? Uh, sure thing. Um, the lawsuit was also filed because of Sony's intentions to make a second adaptation of Casino Royale. The lawsuit also contends that John Kelly misused confidential MGM information to help Sony's Bond project. Kelly was president of MGM's United Artist Pictures for three years while MGM was working to revitalize the Bond franchise. During his tenure at United Artist Pictures, Kelly acquired highly valuable proprietary information about the optimal ways to develop an exploit the franchise and bring it into the 21st century. The suit alleges misappropriation of trade secrets, aiding and abetting breach of fiduciary duty and unfair competition. In 1999, Sony paid MGM $5 million to settle the $40 million lawsuit. In the settlement, Sony agreed to hand over all of its rights to the Bond character and Casino Royale. There was also an exchange of rights made in the deal where Sony exchanged their rights to Bond for MGM's rights to Spider-Man. In an ironic twist of fate, Sony bought MGM just six years later in 2005. The next year in 2006, under producers Barbara Broccoli and Michael G. Wilson, who acquired the rights to Bond in, in 1999, released a, a serious adaptation of Casino Royale. Casino Royale, as we've discussed already, was the movie Albert R. Broccoli and Harry Saltzman wanted to make but couldn't because the rights weren't available. After Wilson purchased the rights in 1999, Barbara Broccoli said Casino Royale is the definitive Bond story. It was always an ambition of theirs, her father Albert R. Broccoli and his producing partner Harry Saltzman, to be able to make this story. Story. But sadly, they were never able to. So when it finally became available to us, we leaped at the chance. I'd like to think that I'm doing this for my dad. And speaking of monumental moments for Eon Productions, Casino Royale is the last of the original Ian Fleming novels to be filmed by Eon Productions, and doing so means Eon Productions has filmed the entire canon of Fleming James Bond novels, although some are 
just technically in name only. For example, The Spy Who Loved Me from 1977, Moonraker from 1979, and You Only Live Twice from 1967. Uh, but with all of that finally out of the way, why don't you take us into the writing process, Steve? Sure, I'd be glad to. Uh, though before I do, I have to say that it's a shame that Cubby Broccoli never got the chance to make this film like he wanted to, and that the rights issues were always an obstacle to that. It is good that he it finally got sorted, and I'm glad that Barbara Broccoli made uh, Casino Royale in tribute to Cubby. I'm sure that he probably would have loved this movie if he'd lived to see it, but let's get into the writing process of the film. Now, originally the plan was to write Casino Royale with Pierce Brosnan in the role of Bond, but Brosnan stepped down as Bond, and the studio had to make adjustments. And Brosnan wasn't the only uh, thing that they had to deal with. After Die Another Day, uh, Brock, Barbara Broccoli and Michael G. Wilson realized that Bond had gotten too fantastical. And honestly, they were right about that. Uh, Die Another Day had gotten far ridic too ridiculous and over the top, even by typical Bond standards, and it needed to be toned down. But anyway, after that, Broccoli and Wilson uh, decided to pivot back to a more realistic take on Bond. So according to one of the screenwriters, the idea was to give Bond a Batman Begins type of film focusing on his origins. My understanding is, is that Batman Begins was also part of the inspiration to do a darker reboot of the character. So thank you, Batman Begins. <laughs> but what can you tell us about the screenplay, Steve? Yeah, the screenplay is credited to Neil Purvis, Robert Wade, and Paul Haggis. Purvis and Wade's involvement came in 2004 when they thought that Brosnan was still attached to the project. Their idea was to bring back the flavor of Ian Fleming in the original Bond novels, as opposed to the Bond formula approach of the previous films. They also had different ideas in mind for how they were going to show Bond getting his license to kill. Initially, the idea was to adapt some of Fleming's short stories, uh, including the Hildebrandt rarity and uh, 007 in New York. Eventually, that plan evolved into the cold open that we see at the start of the film. Uh, Purvis and Wade wrote most of the film, but Haggis came in later and rewrote the climax. I did not know about the Hildebrand rarity, but 007 in New York particularly comes up in Quantum of Solace. Uh, Bond's confrontation with Vesper's boyfriend is taken from the short story 007 in New York, in which Bond warns a female intelligence employee that her boyfriend is an enemy agent. Um, but we'll talk uh, more about that when we get to that film. Indeed we will. Now, uh, there's one interesting point in Casino Royale's development that might interest you, Mike. Apparently, one of our favorite directors had been involved with Casino Royale and had at least wanted to direct it. Do you want to get into who that was and what happened there? I do, actually. While Sony was planning to make Casino Royale, Quentin Tarantino was in talks with Sony Pictures to direct. He claims to have worked behind the scenes with the Fleming family, and he believed this was the reason why Sony finally went ahead with Casino Royale. Tarantino wanted to do an out-of-continuity adaptation of Fleming's novel that would feature Pierce Brosnan as James Bond. But Quentin Tarantino had other casting demands, including wanting Samuel L. Jackson to play Felix Leiter and Uma Thurman to play Vespa. Berlin. Tarantino claimed his treatment for Casino Royale was different. Very different. A film noir, in fact. Uh, set in the Cold War era, immediately after the death of Bond's wife, Tracy, in Honor Majesty's Secret Service from 1969. He would shoot the movie entirely in black and white with no classic John Barry theme, no opening title credits, or the familiar one-liners. Tarantino planned to use voiceover narration in order to incorporate 
Fleming's text. I just want to say that James Bond is not a noir detective. And Tarantino's idea sounds like Bond in name only. And my question is, why even bother calling it a Bond film if you're going to do that? It's frequently reported that Eon rejected his offer. The truth is, however, Eon would not have even been able to hire Tarantino as he refuses to join the Directors Guild, and it's doubtful the Directors Guild would be willing to grant a waiver. So despite Tarantino claiming to walk away from the project and berating Sony, Tarantino would not even have been able to develop a Bond project on his own, and he does not have rights to the character. No, he doesn't, although nothing would have stopped him from making his own version of that film with different characters. He'd have to change the plot elements uh, and remove Fleming's text. But the basic setup uh, that he wanted could have been doable if he'd filed the serial numbers off. The reason I say this is that though the uh, casting choices were very good, this is just not James Bond in the slightest, as you pointed out. I have to say, I was excited to hear that Quentin Tarantino was involved in a James Bond project until you mentioned the details. <laughs> because although there are some interesting ideas in this, uh, they just don't work as a Bond film. You just can't strip away all the iconic elements of Bond, especially the theme music. It, it seems like what Tarantino wanted to do was a version of The Third Man, except featuring Bond. Uh, but while I love The Third Man, that is just not what the Casino Royale book is. And it certainly isn't what the films are. I, I would be open to seeing a Cold War noir detective spy thriller. That is a really great premise. I just don't think it works with this character and what the Bond films fundamentally are. I get the feeling that Tarantino is probably better at telling his own stories than working with established IPs. And to be fair, some directors are like that, where they tell really great stories on their own, but they tend to upset Apple cards when they work on other people's characters. I mean, Ryan Johnson usually comes in mind uh, to mind here. I mean, Star Wars is a divisive mess, but Looper and the Knives Out films are all really good. Um, so it sounds like Tarantino may be a director in that mold, and there's nothing really wrong with that. I think you nailed it. Uh, Tarantino is positively brilliant filmmaker and one of my favorites, in fact. But I think he is the type of director you're describing there. I mean, there is no respect or even appreciation of the Bond franchise and what Quentin Tarantino wanted to do. Also, if he had done any research at all, he would have found out that the Fleming family held no, exactly zero rights to the Bond franchise or even the book's name. So name dropping them as credentials just makes him sound ignorant, if you ask me me and being ignorant about the film industry or its history is in general is not something i would normally attribute to the very knowledgeable tarantino uh, mm. but i have no other explanation for name dropping the fleming estate uh, but we have yet to really get into the story that we ended up with and i believe you have done a synopsis for us isn't that right steve i certainly have uh so with that out of the way let's talk about the story of casino royale and how it goes down in the finished film uh, the cold open uh, tells the story of how Bond receives his double O status. He's assigned to kill a traitorous MI6 operative named Dryden, and much of this takes the form of Bond as he confronts him. Um, it turns out that it takes two kills to earn double O status. Bond describes his first kill, who is one of Dryden's assets. The second kill is Dryden himself, and Bond kills him in mid-speech. Um, the scene just sets the tone for how Bond is for the next five films. Bond later gets, down, later gets sent down to Madagascar to deal with a bomber, who Bond eliminates. This ends up turning into an international incident since the whole thing was recorded and sent to the media. In the meantime, uh, a man known as Le Chiffre, uh, a banker who deals with terrorists, makes an arrangement with an Ugandan terrorist group to the tune of uh, $100 million. After being chastised by M, uh, Bond is sent down to the Bahamas to investigate a corrupt Greek official named Demetrios, who has connections to the bomber and to Le Chiffre. 
Uh, Bond embarrasses Demetrios in a game of poker and then sleeps with his wife in an attempt to dig information out of him. After fending off an attack, Bond kills Demetrios and follows an attempted bombing of a Skyfleer airliner. However, Le Chiffre is on to the fact that Demetrius' wife was feeding information to Bond, and he has her eliminated. But uh, Bond uh, has cost Le Chiffre a fair amount of money, so Le Chiffre decides to recoup his losses by holding a poker tournament in Montenegro. Bond is assigned to infiltrate the tournament since he's the best poker player in MI6. Uh, the plan is to bankrupt Le Chiffre by winning the money, which would force him to give up information on his clients in exchange for protection. So a British Treasury agent named Vesper Lind is authorized to buy Bond into the tournament for $10 million. This initially doesn't go very well. Uh, Bond loses the $10 million, and he tries unsuccessfully to get Vesper to authorize another $5 million to stay in the game. However, um, even though it's unsuccessful, Bond is able to buy uh, himself back in with some help from American agent Felix Leiter. The CIA is also interested in Le Chiffre, and Leiter doesn't think that he can win the tournament himself. So Bond ends up winning the tournament with what's left of Leiter's stake. Um, Le Chiffre's desperation then takes him farther than the British government had planned on. So rather than appealing to the British for clemency, Le Chiffre decides to kidnap Vesper and Bond, and Bond is tortured for the password that grants access to the money. However, a man named Mr. White, who later turns out to be indirectly affiliated with Spectre, kills Le Chiffre, and Bond is able to escape with Vesper. Uh, Bond believes that his contact, Mathis, was compromised, and he has Mathis uh, captured and tortured. Meanwhile, he retires from MI6, thinking to build a new life with Vesper, and they go off to Venice. However, M tells Bond that Vesper never sent the winnings to the British Treasury, and it turns out that Vesper had betrayed him the whole time. So Bond shadows Vesper, leading him to a handoff with some gunmen, and Bond uh, tries to take them down. Um, by the end, eventually, uh, Vesper kills herself, and Mr. White escapes with the money. From there, Bond learns from M that Vesper was coerced into becoming a double agent by threatening her lover's life. Uh, Bond then goes to Lake Como and has his final confrontation with Mr. White, uh, starting by shooting him in the leg. And then after Bond's opening catchphrase, uh, the credit starts rolling. <laughs> wow, that, that was a great story synopsis, my friend. Good job on that one. Uh, but I'd like to switch this over to talking about the film itself. First off, I have to say that I really loved the song they got for Casino Royale. Um, I have not loved a Bond song this much since Paul McCartney and the Wings did Live and Let Die in 1973. Although Madonna's Die Another Day was not too bad. Uh, to be fair, I am a huge Chris Cornell fan, though. Chris Cornell committed suicide back in 2017, having struggled severely with depression most of his life. But before that, he had an awesome career in Soundgarden as one of the big bands that came out of Seattle and the 90s and his solo career that followed was tight i was also a big fan of audio slave the band he formed with what was left of rage against the machine chris cornell in my opinion will go down as one of the great singers so when i heard chris cornell start singing in the theater i lost my damn mind <laughs> you know my name is an awesome song collaborated on by cornell and composer david arnold and i don't know about you but it was stuck in my head for days how about you steve yeah, I'm pretty much in the same boat as you. I'm, I'm a huge fan of this song, and it's my personal favorite of all the Craig Yerobond themes. It just has this classic spy tone to it, but at the same time, it felt like a fresh and at the time modern way to approach it. Cornell's vocals are really strong, and I think he really stretches himself in his range in this one. Also, I love that the title is You Know My Name. Like, Bond is just so iconic and badass that he doesn't need an introduction, and I love that. And, and the song's lyrics really tell you everything you need to know about him anyway. 
So there aren't a lot of Bond themes that I come back to it again and again, but this is definitely one of those. Uh, it fits the character perfectly, and it just sounds cool. But speaking of cool touches, they did something clever with the opening that I think you wanted to talk about, Mike. They did, actually. But first, I want to say that it is awesome that you loved You Know My Name, too. You have great taste, my friend. <laughs> but as to the opening, the black and white opening of Casino Royale from 2006 was the idea of director of photography uh, Phil Mayhew. Uh, he thought viewers would be surprised by the black and white opening, uh, and he thought it was a clever nod to the black and white spy films, the spy who uh, who came in from the cold from 1965 and Reflections in a Golden Eye from 1967. But I can't help but think of that being a nod to the hour-long version of Casino Royale played on CBS's dramatic anthology series Climax in 1954, as it was completely in black and white. Also, <laughs> I'm sure Tarantino says they got the black black and white idea from him at the time of its release while there was black and white shots of james bond during the gun barrel sequence and other films this movie was the only film in the official series to have a significant sequence filmed in black and white hmm reflections in a golden eye i see what they did there <laughs> but I, I but i really do think it's a great way to do that scene i mean in addition to the references you mentioned i think that this movie uh, gets a hitchcockian flavor from that uh, Hitch did a lot of black and white spy films, and there is a Hitchcockian kind of suspense that's built into the cold open. This movie made me the most Hitchcockian that a Bond film has been since the Cubby Broccoli days, and I love that. I hadn't thought about it like that before, and I'm definitely going to be watching for that on my next viewing, but that is very interesting, especially coming from such a huge Hitchcock fan like I know you are, Steve. So we talked a bit before about how Craig's Bond in Casino Royale was a bit more brash and impulsive, but I see in a more analytical viewing of it that there is more to it than that. In the opening sequence, we see two sides of Bond in a really brilliant way. In the words of Dryden, the MI6 section chief in Prague, Bond was forced to feel what he did when he killed Dryden's contact in the bathroom. That was raw and visceral and felt like a lot of just acting on instinct. I mean, the kill itself was pretty sloppy and so was trashing the bathroom. But that is totally understandable when you're talking about having to kill someone for the first time. Granted, what I know about it is mostly from serial killers, but I understand that that first kill is often very sloppy and there are, there's a lot of emotion in it, especially with how Bond had to kill the contact with his bare hands. Now contrast this with the totally calm demeanor of Bond when he killed Dryden and in Bond's words, so to speak, the second kill was much easier. Uh, but it was not just easier. He was having fun with it. And his theatrics of leaving the Dryden's gun in the drawer but taking out its clip or sitting in the dark to startle Dryden when he started speaking to him, it was all a game. I think it actually gets worse when his double O status is confirmed. In that opening chase scene, uh, we see him acting as if he was a kid playing with a new toy of double O status. He absolutely trashed that construction site and put many lives in danger in the process. It was as if he was deliberately choosing the most destructive and conspicuous ways to do everything. He even crosses lines that he should not because he is all caught up in the moment when he breaks into the Nambutu embassy in Madagascar 
Madagascar and attacks the guy in charge and takes a prisoner under their protection into custody. I'm not sure he was even thinking all that clearly as he had to fight his way out and blow up the back of the embassy to get out and he didn't even take the bomber with him. I mean, he got his backpack, so that's one redeeming thing about it. And let's not forget breaking into M's private residence and the brazen nature of not just breaking into MI6's computer servers, but using M's passwords to do it. M of all people. I can't think of a single strategic reason to have done it unless he was aware he had gone too far and had to meet with M in private. Uh, but as a viewer, we would have to put that together as a, ourselves since it doesn't say or show that in the film. Uh, but that was clearly a violation of procedure, perhaps even tantamount to treason considering the, the national secret held in the MI6 servers. Uh, but one thing is certainly made clear. Bond started out very reckless and dangerous, both to himself and to others. And yes, I just said he was a 5150. <laughs> you could be right in terms of Bond's state of mind here. Uh, there probably is a side of Bond that enjoys killing people and revels in violence, restrained mainly by his sense of patriotism. But he got that thrill in killing Dryden and his goons. So it might be that he starts enjoying it a little bit too much and has to learn a rough lesson because of that. Uh, that sounds like like a plausible take to me, and it shows that Bond still has a lot to learn, which eventually he does, but that too comes at the receiving end of a lot of hard life lessons. But I think there was another scene you wanted to mention? There is, Steve. For Daniel Craig's now iconic scene where he rises up out of the water in a pair of Speedos, many of the crew were actually off camera in boats fending off the paparazzi. Craig says that while shooting the scene, he accidentally hit an awkwardly situated sandbake that forced him to stand up and walk out of the water instead of just floating off, as the script said. The image of Craig stepping out of the water ended up being plastered all over the promotional material for the movie, with many people assuming that it was a nod to Ursula Andress's emerging from the beach in the first Bond movie, Dr. No, in 1962. The perceived homage to Bond's legacy likely helped win over many reluctant fans, many of whom were leery when it was announced that an unknown actor was taking over the helm of the franchise. It also helped launch James Bond as a more modern and rugged 007. But the main effect was on Daniel Craig's career. The scene single-handedly turned him into an international sex symbol. Craig's said he realized right away that the moment would draw comparisons to Andres, but he didn't think that he would be haunted by it for the rest of his life. Uh, that's the curse that any Bond has to bear, because like it or not, James Bond is a character who is well known for his sexuality and his numerous affairs that he has with the women he meets. Uh, the actors brought into, play, brought into play Bond have to be the kind of men who can pull that off convincingly. So it's inevitable to some extent that a successful Bond will be a sex symbol at some point. At the same time, I can also see where that might take Craig a bit by surprise, especially since he really wasn't that into the franchise before he took the role. But Craig's feelings about it could explain some of his later roles, especially characters like Benoit Blanc from Knives Out. But let's move on to other things before I digress too much. <laughs> Sounds like a plan. Um when M talks to James Bond about the financial loss Lucifer has taken as a result of his plot in Miami being foiled, she mentions how the CIA discovered uh, he short-sold large quantities of airline stocks after 9-11. When the stocks plummeted on 9-12, someone made a fortune. This really was alleged to have happened in real life, as people noted seemingly suspicious stock trading the day before 9-11. But a thorough investigation by FBI, among others, concluded that there was no Al-Qaeda connection. I can see how that might look like insider trading or a suspicious connection with terrorism. 
but it's a kind of event that really works as an influence on Le Chiffre, who really is a bankster that sponsors terrorists and criminal organizations. And Le Chiffre is the kind of person I could really see doing that. But I think there's more that you had to say about his character. There is. And it's really just a bit of flavoring. Um, you know, when Le Chiffre is playing Texas Hold'em on his yacht and he has to wipe the bloody tear away from his eye? Well, Le Chiffre explains that the blood coming from his left eye is merely a derangement of his tear duct and nothing sinister. But there was more to that line than meets the eye, if you excuse the very obvious pun. In medicine, the name for the left eye is Latin, in the Latin term is oculus sinister. The very Latin word for left is sinister. Think about that for a minute. And the left side and left-handedness have historically been associated with evil. So Le Chiffre was referencing not just the blood coming out of his eye, but also which eye it was coming from. And I think that might have been an unspoken thing about his character. You'll notice that Le Chiffre's girlfriend, Valenka, almost always has her hairstyle to cover her left eye, as if she hides her eye in deference to his damaged one. But let me talk about his bleeding eye for a minute. This bleeding of the eye is a real medical condition, which is known as hemolacria. This is this usually manifests itself as either par partially blood-tinged tears, which are part teardrops and part blood, or as full tear blood drops. Hemolacria can be an indicator of a tumor in the uh lacrimal apparatus of the eye and can also be an indicator of a variety of other diseases. Le Chiffre is actually the first leading Bond villain in the Eon production series to have two readily apparent physical dysfunctions. He has an inhaler for breeding, which, which is actually a character trait from the original novel, but he also has the tear ducts that weep blood. Huh. I didn't know anything about that condition, but it adds a sense of vulnerability and an otherwise cold calculating villain. But I think it makes Le Chiffre a bit more interesting and in that he uses the cold affectation to hide his vulnerability. I also have to mention how good Mads Mikkelsen is, that he can pull off Le Chiffre's condition while still being a sinister and threatening character. Uh, Mikkelsen is a really good actor, especially in villainous roles, but sometimes he ends up in roles that don't really show what he's capable of. Uh, that is definitely not the case here. Uh, the way Le Chiffre will stop to dry or cover his eye while still looking completely cold and ruthless is pretty impressive. And that's not easy to pull off. I mean, all of that is on Mickelson and how good he is in this role. Uh, Le Chiffre is definitely an example of a good villain made better by a great actor. Uh, we are absolutely agreed on all of that. It definitely takes skill to portray a weakness and maintain a powerful presence. Uh, but if I could switch over to another character in the film, I would just like to point out that Bond beat Demetrio at poker and in the process took his prized car, then used that car to all but hook up with his wife long enough to get information out of her about him. Then after Demetrio places the chip uh, and his key ring on the table, Bond kills him, then messes with his reputation by having his second arrangement to get a man to blow up the Skyfeet plane for Le Chiffre. That was an insult, injury, salt in the wound, and then death. I mean, damn. <laughs> but speaking of Demetrio's chip on his key ring, you probably noticed that the number on it was 53. Well, there was a reason beyond the story for that number. 1953 is the year Ian Fleming released his Casino Royale novel. Apparently, and I did not know this before, Playboy magazine has somehow been a longtime association of the James Bond film. Perhaps because Bond is a ladies' man, but I don't know. Either way, uh, 1953 apparently also stands for the year Playboy magazine released its very first issue. Also, 2006's Casino Royale was released 53 years after the novel's publication. 
Oh, that's perfect. I mean, those are some neat little Easter eggs, and that scene does show how badass Bond gets in this film. <laughs> but speaking of poker, I love that Casino Royale focuses on uh, Texas Hold'em. Poker's actually a subject I'm interested in. That's a game that I spent a fair amount of time studying on my own, and it's more challenging than it looks on the surface. I personally haven't played it a whole lot outside of uh, video games because I have a terrible poker face, but I like the mechanics and theory of Texas Hold'em, and I could talk a bit about it and then how the game is shown in the movie. The thing is, much of the trick with Texas Hold'em is in the psychological side of the game. This is a game that rewards a fair amount of aggression because it's designed to bluff your opponents into folding. It also helps to know what the winning hands are uh, and to be able to calculate your odds of winning depending on your hand and whatever tells that you can read in your opponents. The decision of whether to play or fold depends entirely on how good your hand is and how much you can trust that it will beat out whatever your opponents have. Um, first off, I, I know very little about poker, uh, so you have to pardon my ignorance. But um, I thought Bond talked about the trick being to play the person across from you and not your hand, that, that the hand itself is really the last thing to consider. Uh, that makes me think that Texas Hold'em is all about the bluff. I mean, am I, am I misunderstanding something? Um, I wouldn't say it's all about the bluff, but the game is to a large degree about bluffing your opponents and fooling them into thinking you have something better than you actually do. But mostly it's just about keeping the other players off balance and being hard to predict. When you have a good hand, you want to make the other players buy in and make the pot bigger before you lay the smack down on them. But occasionally you'll want to play a bad hand because it'll make you harder to predict that way. If you only play good hands, your opponents will think those are the only ones you play. So you have to vary it up to spice the game. Sometimes the key to a good poker player is knowing how to play bad hands well and being able to play aggressively and bluffing the other guy into folding. This is something that you see a Jim Kirk or a Will Riker doing on Star Trek, which is why they're so good. It's, it's like the Corbomite maneuver. I mean, it's a total bluff. But sometimes you have to play that hand even if you know it's bad. And if you play it right, you can win big hands with a total bluff. So I think that that's what Bond is talking about in that scene. Uh, Casino Royale definitely shows a decent understanding of the game from what I've seen. And Bond absolutely is that kind of poker player at the table. He's aggressive. He's hard to read. Uh, he'll take the right risks even with a bad hand. Uh, Le Chiffre is also a convincing player as well, but for different reasons. He's nearly impossible to read, and he has an excellent poker face. He's also good at calculating the odds of winning, so he's a really smart player. But the way Bond finds the towel and exploits it is the kind of move that would realistically work. The writers seem to know their poker and how the game works, which is really nice to see. I was never any good at poker. <laughs> I, I, I have a horrible poker face, and I'm entirely too predictable and cheap. <laughs> I, I might bluff a little, but I, I wouldn't make a risk. I couldn't back up. Um, also, I'm not all that great at reading people, and maybe that's why I was just mesmerized by the whole game. Uh, but I think you wanted to switch gears over to talking about Vesper's character and her effect on Bond. Am I right? Sure. Uh, in our Perfect Ten episode when we covered Casino Royale, we talked a lot about Vesper and how her betrayal changes Bond completely. Uh, Vesper managed to find the chink in Bond's armor, and Bond is always distrusting, suspicious of women ever since. At the same time, we find out that Vesper was doing this for what she thought was a good reason. Her lover was being threatened by Mr. White and his organization, and she was trying to save his life. But why Vesper ultimately kills herself is a good question that is never fully explained. Uh, Mike, I believe you have a theory about that that you wanted to discuss? 
I do, but you'll have to pardon me as I have to talk about Quantum of Solace a little bit to do it. Now, I will say that watching Casino Royale on its own, I would say that Vesper had killed herself out of guilt for betraying Bond, especially, as I mentioned, because the novel itself seems to imply as much. But I think Vesper did what she could to get Bond out of harm's way because of what she had done. M points out that the only reason James Bond survived the night he was captured and tortured and Mr. White came in and killed the Shifra was because Vesper made a deal to give Quantum the money in exchange for Bond's life. Now add to that Mr. White telling Bond and Quantum of Solace that if Vesper hadn't killed herself, then Quantum would have had him too, like they had her, because he would have done anything for her. Now combine that with Mathis telling Bond in Quantum of Solace that Vesper died for him and gave up everything for him, and Vesper's suicide suddenly makes a bit more sense. I, I think it does. According to Paul Haggis' quote, the draft that was there was very faithful to the book, and there was a confession. So in the original draft, the character confessed and killed herself. She then sent Bond to chase after the villains. Bond chased the villains into the house. I don't know why, but I thought that Vesper had to be in the sinking house, and Bond has to want to kill her and then to try to save her, unquote. That turned out to be an interesting decision, but one that makes sense. Bond is extremely torn when it comes to Vesper by the end. The revelation of her betrayal twists that relationship into something very conflicted, and it haunts Bond through, through Craig's entire time in the role. It certainly does. Bond's relationship with Vesper Lind, short as it was, would affect Daniel Craig's James Bond in every successive movie. Uh, but I will elaborate a bit more on that when we get into the Quantum of Solace discussion. Sounds good. Uh, so apparently there were different versions of Casino Royale that had different regional edits. So we'll go ahead and talk about what's in each of those. Uh, Mike, do you want to get us started? Uh, what was in the U.S. theatrical cut and what was left out? In the U.S. version, certain bits were cut for, to earn the PG-13 rating. The first of those scenes was the opening fight in the bathroom. There are far more punches in the original cut. A close-up on Dryden's contact's face as he grimaces in pain when Bond squeezes his neck, and the part where Bond holds his head underwater is longer. The next scene that is different is Bond shooting the bomb maker. In the original cut, there is a close-up of the bomb maker as he is shot. The scene where Bond fights with Obano and his henchmen was more violent as well. The henchmen don't just fall in the original cut. We see them hit the ground. We also see Obano cr crashing into the glass window and more punches and considerably longer struggle with Obano at the bottom of the stairs. That actually doesn't sound too bad. Then again, the initial UK release had minor edits in the torture scene to secure a commercially lucrative 12 certificate. So in one of them, uh, La Chifra drapes the rope over uh, Bond's shoulder, saying, such a waste, and then removing it, uh, that was cut. This was cut for being a little too sexual, according to director Martin Campbell. Of course, that's interesting, considering they lean into the innuendo quite a bit more in Skyfall, but I'm getting uh, ahead of myself. Mike, uh, were there any other cuts that you wanted to mention? Just a couple, but I do want to comment on the such a waste line. Uh, that was that was a little bit more intense than, than that was described there. Le Chiffre did more than that because of how it was set up. Le Chiffre tells Bond that he has really taken care of his body and then drapes that bald end of the rope over Bond's shoulder, which was very phallic, and then says such a waste. I, I think even a 12-year-old would have gotten that implication despite their 12 certificate. I'd say that it was leaned into just as heavy in Skyfall, in my opinion. But mm -hmm. uh, 
the the other cut what that was done was the torture scene was removing one of the ropes swing under the chair it's worth noting this 12 certificate version featured the bathroom fight and the fight with obano and his henchmen in full <laughs> how did things go over in china with the editing steve not great uh, apparently this film was edited to make it to the chinese market uh, the chinese version is nearly three minutes shorter than the western theatrical version this includes cuts for violence including obano getting strangled Bond cleaning up after the stairwell fight and much of the torture scene. There was also cuts uh, for sexual content, such as the entire scene of foreplay between Bond and Solange. I don't know about you, but cutting out sex and violence in a Bond film is a crime against cinema. <laughs> Bond is all about sex and violence. You cut out who Bond is when you do that. Um, additionally, Judy Dench had to redub one line to pass the censors. Um, Christ, I miss the Cold War was changed to God, I miss the old times. That's a really weak sauce change, if you ask me. It cuts so much of uh, M's character just to cut out a reference that the Chinese didn't like. So I feel bad for the Chinese that the censors gave them an inferior version of a great film. I do too. But to be fair, I am very anti-censorship when it comes to art. Um, I do have to agree that cutting the sex and violence in a Bond film does not give the character a proper balance he needs to work right. It is indeed, as you say, a crime against cinema. <laughs> so well said, my friend. <laughs> but we have talked quite a bit about Casino Royale. What do you say we move on to the sequel? Let's do it. So in 2008, they followed up on Casino Royale with the next Bond film, Quantum of Solace. However, unlike previous Bond films that were generally self-contained, this one played out like a direct sequel. So we see a lot of threads from Casino Royale addressed, including Mathis, as well as Vesper's Lover and the group uh, Mr. White was working for. At the same time, this movie also has its own story and characters that it introduces. So Mike, do you want to talk about the plot of Quantum of Solace? I'd love to. A plot synopsis for Quantum of Solace would go like this. Picking up mere minutes after we saw Bond shoot Mr. White in the leg and introduce himself as Bond's James Bond at the end of Casino Royale, James Bond is driving from Lake Garda to Siena, Italy, with the captured Mr. White in the trunk of his Aston Martin DBS V12. After evading pursuers, Bond takes Mr. White to M, who is waiting for him. Mr. White is interrogated, but he is ju he just laughs at them as he, ha as he has one of Quantum's men, Craig Mitchell, posing as a guard, start shooting up the room, and M and Bond barely get out of the way. However, Bond chases down Mitchell and kills him. M informs Bond that the Americans are angry about the death of Le Chiffre, and they wanted him alive. Bond coldly responds that if they wanted his soul, they should have made the arrangements with a priest instead of him. You <sighs> see, after the death of Vesper Lind, James Bond makes this mi next mission personal, despite denying that it is and lying to himself. James Bond and M sniff a shadowy international network of power and corruption reaping billions. As Bond pursues the agents of an assassination attempt on M, all roads lead to Dominic Green, a key player in the organization which coerced Vesper and a world-renowned developer of green technology. Green is a nasty piece of work, and he is intent on securing a barren area of Bolivia to gain total control of 60% of Bolivia's water supply, start Quantum's own utility service there, and charge them twice as much as they are currently paying for their water in exchange for helping rapist dictator General Medrano stage a coup there. 
The CIA looks the other way, and, and only Bond, with help from Mathis and Camille Montes, a Bolivian agent with her own vendetta regarding Green and Medrano, st stands in Green's way. M wonders if she can trust Bond or if vengeance possesses him. By the end, General Medrano is killed by Camille Montes for killing her father and raping and killing her mother. Green is left to drink motor oil in the desert, and mm. Bond finally makes peace with whatever happened to Vesper. Not completely as it happens, but we'll get into that. So that's a really good recap. So it turns out that the tie-ins between Quantum Solace and Casino Royale were done intentionally. The main writers of the previous film, uh, Neil Purvis and Robert Wade, were brought back for this movie, and that makes Quantum of Solace feel like a direct continuation. They intentionally set certain things up in the previous film with the idea of continuing them here. So, Vensper, so Vesper's death, for instance, was set up so that Bond's feelings could be dealt with in Quantum of Solace. And, and actually, Daniel Craig himself commented on the connections uh, between the films when he said, we felt we needed to tie up those loose ends from Casino Royale in 2006 and make sure people realize that we are, uh, we are back making Bond movies. For me, it's about creating something that is going to stand alone. But if you put the two films together, you're going to have an incredible experience because you will see one continuous story, unquote. And I absolutely agree. Being a horror fan, I would compare Quantum of Solace to Halloween Kills. It's the big action second half of Casino Royale, like Halloween Kills was to, to that Halloween 2018. That's not a bad comparison at all. Now, uh, Kill Bill Volume 2 was the example I was thinking of, but Halloween definitely works as well. It's basically a single movie strung out into several parts. But why don't we get into detail on exactly how that worked out? I'd be glad to. Quantum of Solace is directly tied into Casino Royale, as you say. The story of Casino Royale took place in July and August of 2006, and Quantum of Solace picks up right back in August of 2006. In fact, the opening car chase takes place almost immediately after James Bond shoots Mr. White and introduces himself at the end of Casino Royale. There is a small gap in between there and the start of Quantum of Solace filled in by the 2008 video game of the movie 007 Quantum of Solace. The game shows Bond shortly after Casino Royale chasing after Mr. White and having a shootout with Mr. White's men at his mansion. During the shootout, Mr. White attempts to escape by helicopter, but Bond is able to stop him. The car chase at the beginning is Bond escaping with Mr. White in the trunk of his car as Mr. White's men try to chase him down. Yeah, to be honest, I forgot there was ever a video game of this film, so we won't be talking about it in this episode, unfortunately. But it sounds like they may have made the Matrix Reloaded mistake of tying in so much to video game spinoffs that something's lost in the actual movie. I may have to look into the game and see what I missed there, then add it, uh, see how much it adds to the overall film. There does seem to be a little bit of that going on. I think you're right there. And I'm quite curious what you'll have to say when and if that happens. I will say that without that knowledge, the opening feels a little cold and it is a lot better with that information. But I believe you had a little something to share with us in the writing arena, don't you, Steve? Sure. Uh, so here's an interesting little tidbit that that's worth sharing. Um, an early draft of the script involved James Bond discovering that Vesper Lind had a child by a previous relationship and who had been kidnapped by Quantum. That actually would have made some sense since that plays on a very primal maternal fear. But eventually they went with the idea that it was Vesper's former lover that was threatened. Thinking about it now, I think they may have reused that earlier idea for No Time to Die, which likewise revolved around coercing a lover of Bond by threatening her child. I'm not absolutely certain that was the case, but we definitely have seen instances 
of previous Bond films discarding ideas and then reusing them later in other films. So it would totally make sense if that's the case. Good eye there, my friend. Uh, but I believe you had another interesting point about the previous versions of the script to share, too. Sure. Um, there was another little fact that struck me. Um, Paul's Haggis' submitted script included a scene at a UN-style international conference with Bond having to follow a quantum secret conference by constantly switching frequency. The, the scene was rewritten to take place at an opera, as director Mark Forster feared that it wouldn't be visually interesting. I think this may have been a case where an idea sounded better in the writer's head than it looks on screen, because I think Forster may have been right here. I do like the way it was changed, and it does look better on screen this way. I like the idea of the opera playing uh, as Bond is just wasting bad guys right and left. <laughs> I, I think the editing could have been better in the scene, as there are moments that feel a bit choppy. But I like what they were aiming for, and generally it works for me. I don't want to get too much into this now because it is something I'm going to be bringing up later, but I agree about the choppiness of the scene 100%. And I will add that this is not the only scene in that film. Uh, but again, I will, I will talk about that in a bit. But for now, let's talk some more about the writing process, Steve. Sure. As we discussed, the movie is a direct continuation of Casino Royale. And after this, uh, Paul Haggis was brought in again. And then he reworked the story along with Mark Forster and Michael G. Wilson. Haggis apparently finished the last script draft just before the writer's strike of 2007 and 2008, but the strike got in the way of further work on the script. Forster's contributions were a focus on the theme of re emotional repression. So Bar Bond is very emotionally guarded after Vesper's betrayal, and he wanted to explore that. Uh, Camille, who is the character played by Olga Kurilenko, uh, was introduced by Forster with the idea of a contrasting character who wears her emotions on her sleeve. Uh, Forster wanted a strong female counterpart rather than a traditional Bond girl. Um, I'll also add that they didn't even have a clear title for this movie until days before the movie was announced. Um Solace, <laughs> it turns out, was a reference to a short story title for Ian, from uh, Ian Fleming's uh, For Your Eyes Only collection. Apparently, the title was chosen for a reason, uh, tying to the movie's themes. Uh, quote, when the Quantum Solace drops to zero, humanity and consideration of one human for another is gone unquote. It's a nice idea in theory, but the title doesn't really get that across unless you know the behind-the-scenes details. Uh, eventually, the writer's strike ended, and they were able to polish up the script at that point. So on the strength of a spec script from a writer named uh, Joshua Zatumer, uh, Forster brought him on board to reshape the script until it was more to his liking. Also, uh, Zatumer would work rework the dialogue, often involving input uh, from the actors during the process. So each day, he would rework the dialogue until they had a finished script. Actually, I would like to elaborate on the name in the short story it is based off, if I could. The use of the title Quantum of Solace had been toyed around with since License to Kill in 1989, but for a long time it had been considered unsuitable for a James Bond movie. Daniel Craig admitted he was unsure about it, but it seemed to fit the context of the movie. Bond is looking for his quantum of solace. That's what he wants. Ian Fleming says that if you don't have a quantum of solace in your relationship, you might as well give up. Bond doesn't have that because his girlfriend has been killed. Therefore, he's looking for revenge to make himself happy with the world again. But when Quantum of Solace was announced as the title in January of 2008, the general response to it was confusion. There were a few media outlets that said it sounded like a Harry Potter movie, like Harry Potter and the Quantum of Solace. <laughs> Others simply said that the name was odd. In an interview with GQ magazine, Daniel Craig stated that, it, that he was involved in the decision-making process for the title Quantum of Solace. He also admitted that in, in 
the great tradition of Bond movies, the film's title often is meaningless. Daniel Craig also said that it was meant to confuse a little. It's meant to make you sort of wonder. And we want people to start thinking as they come to see the film. And producer Michael G. Wilson said that an original Ian Fleming title was really important to us. And we thought it was an, an intriguing title that references what's happening to Bond and what's happening to him in this film. Hmm. Well, I do think it's interesting, and the title sounds cool. Uh, this may have been a case where they were trying to be a bit too clever here. Um, I think Fleming's original idea makes sense to use, and I think that they did manage to make it work thematically. But some of it requires being in on the joke, and most viewers are just not going to look this stuff up to find out what the punchline means. I mean, it's a bit like the Martha scene from uh, Dawn of Justice. I mean, sure, there's a logic behind it, and it makes sense if you're aware of the thought process, but you're not necessarily going to see that based on what's shown in the film. And to get the joke, you have to do the work of the movie. Um, there's just some of that going on with Quantum of Solace as well. And I think this may be why viewers were a bit thrown by this movie. But I think you wanted to go into more depth on what the idea involves, Mike. I do, actually. The governor character in the Ian Fleming short story, Quantum of Solace, defines it as uh, a precise figure defining the comfort, humanity, and fellow feeling required between two people for love to survive. If the quantum of solace is zero, then love is dead. He then introduces the law of the quantum of solace as follows. I've seen flagrant infidelities patched up. I've seen crimes and even murder foreign by the other party, let alone bankruptcy and other forms of social crime. In incurable disease, blindness, disaster, all of these can be overcome, but never the death of common humanity in one of the partners. I've thought about this and I've invented a rather high sounding title for this basic factor in human relations. I have called it the law of the quantum of solace. In the same story, James Bond comments on the law of quantum of solace as follows. That's a splendid name for it. It's certainly impressive enough. And of course, I see what you mean. I should say that you're absolutely right. Quantum of solace, the amount of comfort. Yes, I suppose you can say that all love and friendship is based on it in the end. Human beings are very insecure when the other person not only makes you feel insecure, but actually seems to want to destroy you. It's obviously the end. The quantum of solace stands at zero. You've got to get away to save yourself. In an interview, the producers explained it meant that relationships cannot be salvaged unless there is a quantum of solace between two parties. Quantum meaning measure and solace meaning comfort. So if they are not willing to share that, then their relationship is not redeemable. In our case, it is a couple of things. Bond is looking for a quantum of solace after his experiences in Casino Royale. And quantum also happens to be the name of the villainous organization in the film. I think all of this is good and really interesting. I do think that this is probably what they were aiming for with respect to Bond's character arc. And if you know the punchline, it adds up very well. Uh, I think my issue with it is that the film needed to give an idea of the, con of the quantum of soul some context, and it just isn't there. Not in huge depth or anything. I mean, a, a doffhand remark here and there would have been fine. This is something that would have made sense for Mathis to bring up to Bond, for instance. But you have to, this really compelling thematic idea that you have to do the work of the movie to fully understand and appreciate. And that's just unfortunate. So why don't we get into the quantum organization and where Spectre fits into this? Sure, Steve. Producer Kevin McClory, who previously owned the movie rights to Spectre, the character Ernest Stravo Blowfield, any Thunderball uh, 1965 remake, and any and other various outlined scripts and treatments made it so that Blowfield 
the Blowfield character or his organization Spectre could not be used for fear of litigation. That's actually how the quantum idea came about and why Spectre isn't introduced until the fourth Craig uh, Bond film. It was not until 2013, seven years after McClory died, that a settlement was made between MGM, EM Productions, and the McClory estate that they could finally bring everything back under one roof. So that's why Quantum is the name of the organization in this movie and not Spectre. Uh, nothing fall, things fall into place for me. I admit I was wondering why they didn't mention Spectre or even Smirsh in the past two films. I mean, it's pretty clear that Spectre was probably behind Mr. White, even if they don't outright say so. And then we find out that Blofeld is pretty much manipulating the events of the first four films anyway. But if it was a legal issue, I understand now why Blofeld and Spectre's presence are only implied and not more directly referenced, even though it's obvious that it's them behind everything. I mean, all that makes sense to me now. Legal battles are definitely the bane of Bond films. At least they were. It seems like everything is all worked out now. But now that we have the writing stuff out of the way, uh, let's talk about choosing a director. In July of 2006, uh, as Casino Royale entered post-production, Eon Productions announced Roger Mitchell, who directed Craig in Enduring Love and the Mother, had entered negotiations to direct. And the next film would be based on an original idea by Wilson. The film was confirmed for uh, the 2nd of May in 2008 release date with Craig reprising the lead role. Months later, in October of 2006, Mitchell stepped down as director, citing the slow progress on the script. Upon Mitchell's departure, Sony Entertainment's vice chairman, Jeff Blake, admitted a production schedule of 18 months was a very short window and the release date was pushed back to late 2008. Following Mitchell's departure, Tony Scott, Jonathan Mostow, uh, Mark Forster, and Alex Prius uh, were under consideration to replace him. In June of 2007, Forster was confirmed as director. Director Mark Forster was surprised that he was approached for the job, stating that he was not a big James Bond movie fan uh, through the years and that he would not have accepted the project had he not seen Casino Royale in 2006 prior to making his decision. He felt Bond had been humanized in that movie, arguing that since traveling the world, he had become less exotic since the series' beginning. It made sense to focus more on Bond as a character. Forster collaborated strongly with Barbara Broccoli and Michael G. Wilson, noting that they only blocked two very expensive ideas he had. Real-life intelligence operatives acted on set consultants for the movie, including spies and assassins from MI6 uh, and the Israeli Secret Service. I like that these movies do as much as possible to keep the grounded, realistic tone. Uh, part of that is making the spy business feel believable, so it's good that they brought in experts to maintain the right level of realism here. Uh, we talked in the Lethal Weapon episode about how they made the first film uh, feel accurate to real police work, and it seems like they did their due diligence here in the same way. It seems like that was Forster's priority as a director, and that was probably the right approach. Obviously, 99.9% .9 of being a spy is nothing like the globe-trotting playboy adventures of James Bond. Uh, but there are some nice little touches in the film that really harken back to that solid espionage stuff that I like so much. And then bringing on actual experts was a great idea. Forster was definitely the way to go there. So let's talk about the casting for a little bit. As with Casino Royale, uh, the traditional movie characters of Q and Miss Eve Moneypenny do not appear. Producer Barbara Broccoli has said in Casino Royale uh, the book there was no money penny or Q so that is why they are not in that story and in this follow up there didn't seem to be a reason or a place for them 
Daniel Craig obviously came back to play Bond, but Craig's physical training for this movie placed extra effort into running and boxing to spare him the injuries he has sustained on his stunts in Casino Royale. Craig felt he was fitter being less bulky than in the previous movie. He also practiced speedboating and stunt driving. Craig felt that Casino Royale in 2006 uh, was physically a walk in the park compared to this and required a different performance from him because this is a revenge movie, not a love story like Casino Royale. Daniel Craig actually had an active role in the film beyond just playing his part. Craig helped Paul Haggis on the script and helped choose Mark Forrester as a director. Uh, Matthew Almerich came on to play the main villain, Dominic Green. Bruno Ganz was also considered for the part, but Forrester decided Almerich gave the character a pitiful quality. Almerich uh, said that taking the role was an easy decision because it's impossible to say to your kids that I could have been in a Bond film, but I refused. <laughs> <laughs> Almerich and Forster uh, reconceived the character who was uh, supposed to have had a special skill in the script to someone who uses a pure animal instinct when fighting bonds in the climax. Uh, Joaquin Casio played the rapist exiled general Madrano Green and Green is helping to get back into power. According to Olga Kurlienko, uh, she was chosen by Mark Forrester out of 400 women who auditioned for the role of Camille because she seems the least nervous out of all of them. This later sparked controversy because most of the women that they passed over were of Latin descent. And check this out. Despite ultimately not getting the role of Camille Montes, uh, Gal Gadot's uh, audition for the character inspired her to quit law school and pursue acting day yeah debut in the Fast and the Furious 2009, a year after Quantum of Solace. But back to Olga Kurlienko. She found Mitchell Yo in Tomorrow Never Dies inspiring because she did the fight scenes herself. So it's not a wonder she spent three weeks training with weapons and learning how to fight uh, and body fly, a form of indoor skydiving. Kurlienko dis dislikes filming stunts, but Daniel Craig's compassion helped her to carry them out. Kurlienko also trained with a dialect coach to perform the Spanish accent, which was easy since she had a good ear and can imitate people. Giancarlo Giannini comes back to play Renee Mathis. Gemma Adderton plays MI6 agent Strawberry Fields. Jesper Christensen reprises his role as Mr. White. David Harbour plays Greg Beam, the CIA section chief for South America, and a contact for Felix Leiter. Jeffrey Wright played Felix Leiter, Bond's ally in the CIA. Mark Forrester asked his friends and fellow director, uh, fellow directors Guillermo del Toro and Alfonso Cuaron uh, to appear in cameos. Cuaron appears as Bolivian helicopter pilot while Tel Toro provides several other voices. Oh, that's awesome as a fan of both of those guys. Uh, Del Toro, I know, tends to do little things for his friends like that, so it's nice to see that he did the same for Forcer in this movie, and the same for uh, Alfonso Cuaron. Um, it's also really awesome that uh, this movie indirectly led to Gal Gadot getting a, uh, into a full acting career. She probably wasn't ready for the role at that time, but I think she'd almost certainly have won out if she had auditioned for the role of Camille today. As it is, I can't complain about Olga Kurilenko because she does a really good job as Camille in this film. Also, it's interesting to see David Harbour here in his pre-Stranger Things days. He did a lot of smaller roles for years before he took off on that show. But moving on, I think you wanted to talk about the opening theme of this film. 
I just have to say that I love the song for this movie too. Uh, but like the song for Casino Royales, you know my name kicks so much ass because they got the great Chris Cornell to do it. So too, Another Way to Die is so awesome because they got two more greats in Alicia Keys and Jack White to do it. What do you think of Another Way to Die, Steve? I was presently surprised by that song because I hadn't really listened to it until I watched the opening credits for this film. While You Know My Name is still my favorite of the Craig era themes, I think this is easily a second favorite after finally experiencing it. I'm not a huge Alicia Keys fan in general, but she absolutely nailed it on the vocals for sure. And the theme in general absolutely gets the tone of intrigue down. Nice. I, I think we agreed on those two songs and their order and quality. Uh, but if we could switch over to some of the stunt scene, stunts in the film, the free fall scene involved its own set of challenges. Daniel Craig disliked the idea of being hung by wires and blown by a large fan in front of a green screen. But actual skydiving coverage has serious drawbacks. It's not only difficult, dangerous, and time-consuming, but nearly always results in problematic head replacements for close-up. Stump coordinator Gary Powell and visual effects designer Kevin Todd Hogg uh, presented the idea of filming the scene in a large vertical wind tunnel in Bedford in order to do the sequence as practically as possible. While a great solution for the cast members' performances, the technique presented enormous visual effects challenges. Relighting shots captured in tall white tubes to match the sky over the Bolivian desert and the impossibility of filming medium to wide shots of the cast members. An array of eight DALSA origin cameras supported by seven high-definition cameras and a 35-millimeter handheld camera all running in sync was used to create a virtual camera with which to shoot the actors floating in the simulator. Uh, Ged Wright and his team at Double Negative developed a method to use the data from the cameras that allowed these real performances to be placed in a synthetic environment as seen by a synthetic camera. Mm -hmm. During the shooting the wind in the wind tunnel, uh, Craig and Olga Kurlienko wore wind-resistant contact lenses that enabled them to open their eyes as they fell. For safety and comfort, they only shot for 30 seconds at a time. Director Mark Forrester wished he had more time to work on the scene, though. I remember watching that scene and thinking they were probably going to go splat on the ground if this was anything <laughs> but a Bond movie. They certainly took their time in triggering the parachute in that scene. It's not as ridiculous as things we've seen before. I mean, die another day coming to mind here. But this may be the moment that bordered on the closest to it that I've seen in the Craig films. But I imagine it couldn't have been easy for the stuntmen or the people shooting it. They managed to pull it off really well given the challenges involved, so good on them. But let's turn our attention to Bond's other important relationship in this film. Uh, Mike, what is your take on M in Quantum of Solace? Um... Quantum of Solace actually does a good job of putting you in M's shoes. James Bond is a loose cannon that can do some good with proper direction, but she is constantly having to cover for him and make excuses for him. It did not help things for her that, at all that he killed a member of the special branch, whether he was dirty or not. They show her having to go before the minister with absolutely nothing to show him to validate Bond's actions. And then to hear from the minister himself that they are willing to work with Green and the Americans to secure oil rights and, and, and right or wrong doesn't even play a factor in what they are doing anymore. London is acting out of necessity. I would imagine that to do a job like hers, there has to be some kind of greater morality that you're holding on to um. to justify what would have to be done in her situation. Basically, the minister just ripped that away from her. 
Yeah, the film does a good job of making you question Anna at first, even though you know she'll eventually come down on Bond's side. This is a movie that deals with shifting loyalties and allegiances on both sides, but eventually they do get into M's positions on things, as you describe. And you can totally understand why she sometimes finds Bond frustrating, because he likes to go in and cause trouble. At the same time, you also see why M respects Bond, too, and why she's willing to risk her career to back him at the end of the day. We'll talk more about the relationship uh, when we get to Skyfall, but here's where we start to see the surrogate mother side of M come out. Your mother? She thinks she is. <laughs> I just love that exchange. And you know Bond is thinking of M when he says that. But I really do think that M regards uh, Bond as a son she never had, or at least she grows to, th to think of him that way. I love that line too. And and as you say, we will dive into that more tomorrow. Uh, but I will say that M, as played by Dent, has a lot more affection for Bond and respect for what he can do than she really lets on. But if I could make an observation about those that M herself worked for. On the plane with Leiter and, and his boss, Green, says that he, he needs the Americans to get rid of Bond for him. Later, when M is talking to the minister, he tells her that their interest and Green's have been aligned and then suggests that Bond's wild behavior might mean that he has turned, which is ridiculous, and that M should pull him out before the Americans put him down. That seems to imply that the Americans and or Green, the British government, that Bond was in their way as a courtesy and that Minister was trying to get him out before they took him out. But it also, by extension, implies that if Bond were to get taken out, that was just part of the deal. More than likely, yes. It's clear that the minister had a shady deal going on with the CIA, Green, and the Bolivians. I figure as long as the Americans and the minister got what they wanted out of the deal, they didn't care who had, they had a rollover to do it. I do like how a lot of it is couched in terms of political interests. They know they're making deals with the devil, but they're so jaded and used to dealing with shady people that they'll destroy people who are trying to do the right thing. It's a really cynical position to take, and it shows how long these people have been dragged down by the way things work in the spy business. So the quantum of solace is definitely down to zero in this case, but they're not the only ones, are they? Oh, they are not. And that was a great reference with the Quantum of Solace there. And actually, on that note, Bond seems to be blinded in Quantum of Solace. That Quantum of Solace referenced in the Fleming short was definitely down to zero. And I say blinded because all that he can see is Vesper's one act of betrayal and not all of the other factors. He knows that for all Vesper knew, Quantum had kidnapped her lover, Yusef Kabira, and was going to kill him if she did not take part in their scheme. She did not know that Kabira was a quantum agent who had merely seduced and manipulated her into giving up classified information and then faked his kidnapping to further manipulate her. But Bond knew that. He even made the connection with the Algerian love knot necklaces as he points out to the Canadian agent Bond lets go when he confronts Kabira, who had the same necklace. M even tells Bond that Vesper offered to give up the money from the poker game at the Casino Royale so that Quantum would let Bond live after, the, after he had been captured, tortured, and Lashifa was killed by Mr. White. Even when M points out that Quantum had faked the deaths of Vesper's ex-lover after they found the body that was supposed to be his but wasn't, that did not dissuade him. When M says that they knew it was not him because of a lock of his hair Vesper had in her hotel room that they used for a DNA check, Bond responds by saying he was surprised that she could be that sentimental. When M says that he would have to be pretty cold bastard to not want revenge for the death of someone he loved bond doesn't even flinch and says you don't have to worry about me i'm not going after him he's not important and neither was she 
But you'll notice, as M does, that Bond is killing everyone he comes across. Even when it would be better for the investigation and MI6 if he kept them alive. M keeps asking him, what about this person and that person? And Bond's response is always some coded way of saying he killed them. All of that to say that Bond isn't angry and that it and it is that big of a deal to him. But he, he's venting his frustrations through his work and it is only serving to make things more complicated. It's not even going to help Bond as he isn't even confronting the person or people he is angry with directly. The trail of body he leaves in his wake all lead to Green and only after he gets his vengeance on Green does he seem to calm down at all. This is what Mathis and Camille are trying to tell Bond. His prison is of his own making. M says it best. This isn't about oil. It's about trust. You said you weren't motivated by revenge, to which M clarifies, no, I think you are so blinded by inconsolable rage that you don't care who you hurt. When you can't tell your friends from your enemies, it's time to go. She also forces him to take responsibility for his charms. He has them. He knows it, and he uses them to manipulate people into co cooperating with him, or in the case of many women to give him information ironically something not too dissimilar from what kabira does he uses his affections to manipulate women into giving them secrets too the difference is that bond isn't he's not secretly setting the women he manipulates up to work for an evil organization this actually makes me feel worse for vesper and for bond vesper compromised herself because she thought that she was saving the person that she loved but she was really a pawn of Quantum and possibly Spectre the whole time, and her good intentions only lead to her death, and all of it for absolutely nothing because Yusuf never valued Vesper's love or her sacrifice at all. He just used her for his own benefit and then cast her aside. Um, I have to say, though, that I'm impressed that Bond fights the strength within himself not to shoot Yusuf in the head because he absolutely deserves it after his treatment of Vesper. I honestly found that whole scene there uh, very satisfying. I will add that they that they really said a lot by having Yusef Kavira pulling the same scam on the Canadian agent with the same necklace and seeing Vesper's necklace lying in the cold snow. Um, snow has been used in poetry as a metaphor for death, and I can't help but think that is what they were going for by showing that necklace in the snow and the snow as the snow fell down upon it. For Bond, the issue now lies among the, the long, cold dark. That's a pretty good call on the snow metaphor, and I like it. It also represents the emotional coldness of that whole scene as well, so that makes sense to me. But let's move on to another important relationship in Bond's life, uh, his friendship with Felix Leiter. One interesting idea in this film is that for once, Bond and Felix seem to be on opposite sides on this one. Usually MI6 and the CIA are more than happy to work together to take on the bad guys, and Felix is always portrayed as one of Bond's most trusted allies. But because of the corruption involved in Quantum's early dealings and their connection to the American and British governments, Bond is on the wrong side of the CIA, at least early on in the film. At the same time, I can't help but think that the movie is expressing criticisms of the U.S. government. This especially comes up when Bond points out that the CIA is always dealing with bad guys that take down worse guys. But it's probably most apparent with Greg Beam, the CIA chief played by David Harbour, who seems to be almost a caricature of American politicians in some ways. Needless to say, it turns out that he's corrupt and nobody sheds a tear when he ends up dead. Either way, Felix is absolutely the right man to take that job. But in any case, I like the storyline because it tests Bond's friendship with Felix and it shows why these two are good friends, even when they have opposing political interests. I have to agree with that. I love that Bond just called up Felix to meet. Uh, well, Felix was damn sure going to do his job, because despite corruption, I think he still believes in what the CIA does. 
I hope you've had fun hanging out with us today on ORP. I know that Steve and I have had fun making this episode. If you've had fun too, we invite you to share this episode and help us get the word out. For our Spotify listeners, we ask you to please rate our show as well. That can really help to grow our audience. But to all our listeners everywhere, we want to say thank you for listening and we'll see you in two weeks.